It is good to be with you today, Sage Mont. Thank you so much for coming today. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. I'm going to have the scriptures on the screen behind me. Matthew 25, verse 31. We'll get there in a minute. We are finishing our series today on biblical generosity. We, um, we're starting next week a series on the book of Ephesians. And uh, it's probably going to take us a couple of years to get through Ephesians. We, true, that's true. I wasn't making that up. And uh, we, uh, we're going to have uh, some series we'll throw in a couple times, three times during the semester to keep things fresh and new. But last time I checked, the Word of God is living and active and I, I don't like skipping stuff. And so we're gonna go through the book of Ephesians. That's a powerful book that applies to us as a church. So I'll be here next week, open that up. We've been uh, three weeks, final week on biblical generosity. God's view of money. We've been primarily answering the question, why does our God who is the, you know, the owner of everything and the creator of everything, why does he ask us to give a portion of our income back to him. It's really a fascinating question when you think about it. Because every time that somebody asks you to give them money, it's because they have a need. Like when your children, parents, when your children ask you for money, why do they ask you for money? They have a need. Well, that, that's actually not true. They have a want, um, but you get the point. Like if your friend were starting a company, and he came to you and asked you to invest in his company, why does, he do that because he has a need. He has a need for investment capital so he can at some point become profitable and cover his expenses till then. If a nonprofit comes to you, they're raising money, why do they do that? They have a need for finances. In every single situation, somebody asks you money is because they have a need in every single situation except one. And that's our God. Why does God, who is an all-powerful, creator who the scripture says has no need why does he ask us to give a portion of our income to him all right now here's what we've learned so far here's what we've learned so far number one point we looked at a couple weeks ago talked about it more deeply last week number one is giving to the lord ensures that our hearts affections are in the kingdom that's number one Given to the Lord ensures that our heart's affections are in the kingdom. Jesus said that wherever you put your money, your heart is going to follow it. Wherever your money goes, your heart's affections are gonna go after it. And so we talked about how Jesus said, one of the reasons you wanna give is because you want your heart's affections to be in the kingdom. The second thing we looked at, we talked about this last week. Scripture showed us that giving to the Lord teaches us to fear him as Lord and give him the rightful place in our lives, okay? We talked about last week, I don't know if y'all missed that, but had the big you know, table full of fruit. If you missed that sermon last week, go back and listen to it. But the scripture says that God asked us back in the day in the Old Testament to give a portion of our income and set it aside and it's off limits. It's considered holy. You can't look at it, can't talk about it. You can, it's God's, it belongs to him. And the reason that we do that, the reason God asks us to do that is because that teaches us to give him his rightful place in our life. And what is his rightful place in our life? It's first, it's first. 
And the reason that God asked us to place him first is this reason, because our life will always be out of order until we have him first in our lives. Always be out of order until he is first in our lives. Number three, we've looked at this, is giving to the Lord teaches us to trust him as father. To trust him as father. Okay, it's, it's, it's one thing if you, you know, you get a paycheck and you pay all your bills and you pay all your obligations and then maybe if you have some left over, give some to God. That's good. That takes discipline. But it's something altogether different when you get a paycheck and, and you've set your, your life up in such a way and you have enough margin where you can give to him and you can give to him first. Before you do anything else, that doesn't take discipline, that takes trust. And God wants us to do that. He asked us in the scripture, would you do that? Would you, would you give a portion to me and would you do it first? Because that teaches your heart to trust him, to have faith in him. And every time you see somebody demonstrating faith, God loves it. God loves faith. Somebody emailed me that this week. It's a quote, I don't remember who said it, but is that faith blesses God and God blesses faith. Faith blesses God and God blesses faith. Now, that's what we've learned so far. What we're gonna do with today's message is we're just gonna jump into some application. What does this mean for us? How do we live this out? Tell you a couple of stories, a couple of thoughts, and we'll be done today. But let me start off this kind of application section by asking you a question. Believers, speaking of believers here, how important is it that you obey God? in regards to your finances? Is it a big deal? Is it not that big of a deal? Is it not a big deal at all? How important is it that you and I read what our Lord and Savior said about our finances and then obey it? Well, I think you can make a pretty strong argument that it's extremely important. And I'd say, here's why. Because it would be really difficult, church, it would be really difficult, and I, I dare say it's impossible for you to make an argument that you can be a Christian and that not impact how you steward your finances. I stand by that statement. I think it would be almost impossible for you to make an argument that you belong to Jesus Christ, that you're a follower of his, and that make no impact whatsoever on how you steward your finances. Now, I wanna be really clear about something. And I want everybody to listen to me, check this out. Financial generosity will not get you into heaven. Financial generosity will not get you into heaven. There are people that have given money to the church and they're not in heaven. So financial generosity does not get you into heaven, but what I am convinced Jesus is teaching is that financial generosity is one of the evidences that you are going to heaven. A change in how you view money, handle money, steward your money is one of the primary, I dare say, evidences that you are in fact a new creation. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Let's, let's look at Matthew 25, 31. I'll show you what's going on here. Jesus is describing judgment day. It's after his return, and the scripture says that all the nations are gathered before him. And what he does is he takes the people that are his true believers, but really his followers, he puts them on his right. Takes the believe, uh, people that were not his followers, puts them on his left, and then he tells them, hey, 
you're, you're going to go to heaven. And he sort of tells them why. It's a fascinating part of the scripture. Now, there's something I want you to know that's really important. The scene that I'm about to read, Jesus is talking, number one. Number two is this is not some hypothetical thing that's going to happen. Like it may or may not happen. This is Jesus painting a verbal picture of something that will happen and you will be there. You are in this picture. Jesus said, here's what's going to happen on the last day. And everybody that's ever lived is in this story, including, including you and including me. So keep that in mind. Let's read the words of Jesus, Matthew 25, 31. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So picture that in your mind. Jesus has returned. He's gathered everybody that's ever lived and he is on his throne and he's about to say something. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So he's sitting on a stone, everybody's there. He takes his sheep, his true followers, puts them to his right, and then he takes people that were not his true followers, calls them the goats, and puts them to his left, and then he starts talking about heaven. In verse 34, he says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, from the foundation of the world. And then the next word he's going to say is because. Then the king will say to those on his right, come to you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What do y'all think he's going to say next? You think he's going to say, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from the foundation of the world because you walked an aisle and prayed a prayer. That's not what he says. That's important. That's not what he says. You think he's going to say, hey, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world because you went to church three out of four Sundays a month. That's important, but it's not what he says. What does he say to the people on his right that are about to go to heaven? Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for because I was hungry and, everybody say it, you gave. Whoa, what, Jesus? People on his right going to heaven. Hey, it's time to go to heaven. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for when I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me in. And then those of us that are on the right are going to go, hey, Jesus, I don't remember seeing you hungry. When were you hungry? And I gave you food. When were you thirsty? And I gave you something to drink. And then Jesus on his throne and said, whenever you did that to the least of these, my brothers, you were doing it for me. Listen. Financial generosity does not get you into heaven. You are saved by grace, through faith, alone. It is not of works. So what in the world does this mean? Why on the last day, hey, you're going to heaven because you gave. The only explanation for that is not that giving and generosity gets you into heaven. The only explanation for that is that if you're going to heaven, that's gonna come out of your life. Generosity is gonna be there. And so 
With that in mind, let's do two points of application today. That's it. Two points of application will be done. First point of application, and I'll be done with this series, is this. And I want you to put your seatbelt on. Because the theological complexity of this first one is awe-inspiring. All right, you ready for this? I'm going to give you the first kind of point of application just to today. Here's application number one for you and for me regarding our finances. Here it is. Start obeying Jesus with your finances. Isn't that crazy? That's nuts, I know. That's it. Start obeying Jesus with your finances. It's really straightforward. So straightforward though, how come we don't do it? Because it's kind of fascinating to me because I know, one of the things we know rather that happens when we become Christians is that We trust in him as our Lord, that he becomes our Lord and our savior. But let's talk about that for a second. One of the things we do, we ask him to forgive us of our sins. He does. He wipes our slate clean. We become declared not guilty. He no longer sees our sin. He sees a beloved child of God, throws our sin as far as the east is from the west. And so he becomes our savior. But the other thing that happens is our salvation is not only is Jesus our savior, but he becomes our Lord. He's our, he becomes our master. We become his disciple, which means that whatever our Lord and master says, we do. I don't know if you knew that or not, but that's, that's, that's a huge part of being a Christian. Not only receiving the forgiveness of sins, but it's surrendering your entire life to the will of your teacher, disciple, Lord, King. That's Christianity, okay? And most of the time we do it. Like when... Our Lord and Savior says, don't murder anybody. We say, all right, we we won't. We'll try not to, at least, you know, we won't. And we usually do pretty good at that. And then says, our Lord and Savior tells us, don't steal. We're like, okay, we're not gonna steal anything. And we don't. Um, And we we, we don't even like people that steal. And then our Lord and Savior says, don't look at a woman with lust in your heart. We go, all right, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna fight. And and for that, I'm in, Lord and Savior. But then you hear our Lord and Savior say stuff like, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. And you're like, what, what, excuse me? What'd you say, Jesus? Huh? Uh, well, I'm gonna keep reading. Right. Here's a crazy idea. What if, you know, since we're Christians and all, followers of Christ, what if we committed as Christians, as a church, that if our Savior and Lord said it, we do it? I know that's crazy. What if we decided to do it? I'm in. You in? All right, let's look at what he says. We're going to live this out. Not many amens when I said, are y'all in? <laughs> so let's, let's, let's unpack this. It's not as insane as you think it is, in my opinion. Matthew 6, 19. Let's look at, let's look at that verse. There's a couple of things in this verse that I think give us pretty strong clues about what it means for us to actually live this out. Let's read it, Matthew 6, 19. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in. There's two underlined things. Do not store up for yourselves and where moth and rust destroy. And I think those are two clues that give us an idea what Jesus is actually saying. Now, a lot of people over the years, a lot of commentators, a lot of Christians, a lot of pastors, have taken this verse to mean that Jesus is telling us as believers that we're supposed to take a vow of poverty. We have no earthly possessions. 
I'm honestly convinced, I may be wrong. I may get to heaven and Jesus like, hey man, you missed that. But I'm convinced that's not what it's saying. I'll tell you one in a second. I'm convinced he's not saying that it's wrong to have 401ks or it's wrong to have life insurance or it's wrong to have a savings account or, or, or that. I, don't, I really don't believe he's saying that. What I'm convinced he's doing here, and I want you to hear this, is that his words are a call to action towards what we use our earthly treasures for. That's what I think he's doing. In other words, he's not saying it's wrong to have money, but what I believe he's saying is what's wrong is when we use our money for non-kingdom purposes only. Okay, let me show you what I'm talking about. Let me explain Matthew 6, 19 again. It says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now listen carefully. If Jesus' point was that we're supposed to take a vow of poverty and have no earthly possessions, then here's what I'm pretty convinced he would have said. Matthew 6, 19, I'm pretty convinced if that was his point, you can have no earthly possessions, I think he would have said that. I think he would have said, do not store up any treasures on earth. That's not what he says. What does he say? He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. You guys see the difference? Okay, the issue, the issue here is that having earthly treasures is not the issue. It's what you do with your earthly treasures, I think is the issue. And so his point, again, is not that having money and stuff is bad. His point is that you and I, as his followers, need to be using our money and stuff for some other purpose besides ourself alone. Right? Here's, so we'll keep that in mind. Let's look at the next part there. He says, do not store for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy. What does that mean? That's one of those phrases that you hear growing up in church. You have no idea what it means. What do you mean? Don't store it for myself. Treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy. Okay? Now, but think about it to get our minds around what this means. Under what scenario, church, can a moth destroy something? Under what scenario... Can something become rusty? Okay, I think that something like a treasure can be destroyed by a moth or eaten by a moth or become rusty if it's just sitting there doing nothing, right? If, if you've got earthly treasure and it's just sitting there with no purpose whatsoever, that's when moths will start munching on it and that's when it'll get rusty. Okay, I think that's what he's saying. But, and so, if your treasure, rather, is on the move, if it's got purpose, then a moth can't eat it. If your treasure's being utilized, then it's not going to become rusty. I think that's his point. Not that treasure's wrong, but that you need to be utilizing your treasure, not for yourself, but for the kingdom of God. One of the best examples I've seen of this was in Israel. How many of y'all ever been to Israel? Man, that's a lot. If, if you get a chance to go to Israel, go. It'll change your life. It'll change the way you read the Bible. It really is amazing. And one of the places that Jennifer and I went was a place called Masada. Now, Masada is, was built by King Herod, who was not a Christian. And it, he built it on top of this mountain. If you're, you're bored after the sermon, look it up. It's pretty cool. It's like this mountain city thing on top of, uh, of a mountain. And it was basically, Masada was King, King Herod's 401k is the best way to describe it. And what he did is he built these huge storehouses 
And he amassed just a huge amount of food. And he put it into these storehouses, okay? And um, I mean, it was a massive amount of food. Our, our, our tour guide said this, that it's estimated that he stored up enough food to feed a thousand people for five years. But that's how much food, that's a lot of food. Thousand people for five years. Now here's what's sad, is that Herod died and he never touched it. And the entire time that all this food that could have fed a thousand people for five years was sitting there, what we found out historically is there was a huge period there where his people and his kingdom were starving. Okay. 2,000 years later, they found the, uh, find the archaeological site. The remains of the food were still there. But the moth and the rust had destroyed it. Okay? That's a great picture, I think. Small part of the picture, but it's a great picture of what Jesus was saying here. Herod had stored up for himself treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy it. And Jesus' point is when it comes to our finances, there's a far better use for it than just amassing it for ourselves. And so again, his point is not that believers having wealth is bad. What his point is, is that it's wrong for believers to hoard wealth to the point that it never gets used for the kingdom of God. What should we be utilizing our wealth for? If not hoarding well for ourselves where moth and rust can destroy. In the next verse he tells us, look at verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And then verse 20 is gonna tell us what our, our, our resources, our money should be used for. He said, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. There it is, okay? The call in our lives is not a call to poverty, but the call in our lives is to be people that are radically generous with the money that God has given us for the glory of God. So I wanna take a minute here and I wanna to, to talk to most of the folks in the room here. And I wanna start by talking to folks that are wealthy in the, in the world's standards. Because there's a lot of folks in here, including myself, that I would say, well, I'm not really wealthy. I don't have enough money where I can just store up millions of dollars that's never gonna be used. So Jesus obviously is not talking about me. No, um, one of the things I've learned over the years is that if you're alive in the 21st century and you live in America, you're one of the richest people that's ever breathed there in the history of the planet. And so it's talking about us, but let's, for the sake of argument, let's talk for a second to people in here that are actually wealthy in the world's standards. What does this mean for you and me? Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy. And I'm just gonna give you my opinion here. I'm stepping away from the Bible for a second. I'm gonna give you my opinion on what I think it means. I think it means this. I think if I were wealthy, what it means is I would take care of my wife. I would make sure that she's taken care of for the rest of her life. Um, I would give money to my kids, not where they got rich, but enough where they were taken care of and sure they were taken care of. But then after... I, after that's done, I, I think Jesus is saying that you need to be looking for ways to put your money to work for the kingdom of God. You need to be looking for ways to get your money in the fight for the glory of God. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, 
when I planted my church in Austin, it's called the Austin Stone, ton of college students. We, we did not have many older folks. And um, one of the five older people that were there was a guy named Al Lopez. And Al was one of the godliest men that I've, I've ever met in my life. He was in his, he was in his uh, 60s, early 60s at the time, mid-50s. And um, when he was growing up, his parents were immigrants from Mexico, came to the United States, Al was extremely intelligent. He was a great athlete, too. He got a scholarship to play basketball at a university. And so that's how he put himself through college. And after that, he got a job right out of college at IBM, worked his way up through IBM and became a vice president at IBM and then was hired at Dell and was one of the early folks at Dell. And, and at the end of his career, he, he was a senior financial executive at Dell, you know, had all kinds of stock that had split all these different times. And he retired a multimillionaire. He retired a multimillionaire. Al and his wife, Judy, bought this massive house in downtown Austin. I believe it was, I think it was about $4 million back in the day, which was a lot back in the day. Now a thousand foot shack in downtown Austin's worth $4 million, but back then that meant you had a big house, right? He was retired, had all the money in the world, money he'd never spend. He's on the golf course, went fishing, he was living the life. And then this young punk pastor moved to Austin and started preaching on getting your money in the fight for the glory of God. Well, it's kind of crazy, but he took it really seriously. He started doing what I asked. He looked at the Bible and for himself, he came to the conclusion, I, I do, I think that's what Jesus is saying to us, not that we can't have money, but that we need to use our money for the glory of God. That guy and his wife sold their paid for $4 million house. They took a million of it. They gave it to the church because we were in a building campaign. We we're about a million short. And so he paid off our building. He took the other 3 million. I don't know how much of that he used, but he bought an apartment complex in the poorest neighborhood in Austin called St. John's Neighborhood. Bought an apartment complex, poorest neighborhood in Austin, started a nonprofit for single mothers. They could live in this apartment complex. I don't remember, it was, it was either low rent or rent free. Um, they provided the ability to help them find jobs. They provided low cost daycare and they pointed them over and over again to Jesus pretty good way to spend your final years, I think. Last year, I got a text from Al's son that Al had passed away, died of a massive heart attack at 68 years old. Here's what he did. I found out that he did that. He, he provided for his wife, Judy. Um, she'll, she's completely taken care of the rest of his life, and that's a good thing. But here's what he didn't do. Al didn't die on a golf course somewhere with millions of dollars sitting in the bank collecting dust. Instead, he finished his life by helping build a building where the gospel is preached every Sunday in the lost city of Austin. And he created a place, a space that did not exist before where single mothers who God has a heart for could come and hear about Jesus. Have their lives changed? I have a question for you. When Al died, 
and he woke up standing face to face with Jesus. I want to ask you a question. Do you think he regretted that decision? As he's standing there looking at Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, do you think he's in the back of his mind thinking, you know, I'm not sure I should have sold that house. Wish I would have played golf more. I think when he actually saw Jesus, his thought, I don't know this for sure, but his thought is probably, man, I wish I would have done it a lot sooner. I doubt he regretted it. And the reason that I doubt he regretted it is because of Matthew chapter 25, because Jesus is going to look at him one day and say, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, because when I was hungry, you gave. I think that's what it means. For those of you in the middle class, kind of upper middle class, most of us are probably in this area. You may be thinking, well, Jesus isn't talking to me because I don't have millions of dollars just laying around in a bank account somewhere. So I'm free, I'm good. I think this is what means, this is what this means for you and for me. Don't store it for yourselves, treasures here on earth where moth and rust. Can destroy. I think this is what obeying Jesus looks like. I think it means don't raise your standard of living to the point that you have no margin in order to be generous towards the kingdom of God. Some of you have been hearing this stuff the last three weeks and you're like, I honestly would like to be generous, but because of decisions you've made, there's no margin for you to do it because of the car you bought, the house you bought, the boat you bought, whatever. You're just in this place where money is so tight that you can't be Generous, And so you may not have millions of dollars sitting in a bank account somewhere where moth and rust can destroy, but all your treasures are caught up in things that you've bought. And it's essentially the same thing. And so what does it look like for you and for me that are in that place? Do what my wife and I did. And then we have to continually do and throughout our entire lives is you have to look at your finances and ask the question, what are some things that we can give up what are some things that we can sacrifice in order for us as followers of Christ to obey Jesus? And then, and then, and then give it up. And instead of raising your standard of living again, you, you become generous like he called us to. Cut back on your television package. Do you really need 300 channels? Hulu and Netflix and, you know, Apple and Prime TV. You know, we don't. Cut, cut back on... Uh, Come back, I'm going to Starbucks all the time, which is easy for me because I hate Starbucks. But like, you don't have to go to Starbucks every day. Make, make coffee at home. Cut back on the number of times that you go out to eat. You know how we just, hey, where are we going for lunch? Just go home. You got food in your pantry, I promise. If you don't, you call us, let us know. We'll give you some food. <laughs> Drive that car one more year. This, I, I don't like this part of being a Christian, but I'm just telling you, like, my wife drives a 2013 car. My car, my truck has 117,000 miles on it, but we do that as actually a joy because I want to have the margin. I'd love to have a King Ranch pickup truck or something, but I intentionally choose not to because I want to make sure we keep the margin for us to be generous. Next time you get a raise, don't immediately up your standard of living, but start looking for places for you to be able to live this kingdom lifestyle of generosity. Young folks, college students, young adults, Let's talk to you for a second. What does this look like for you? Because you most of y'all don't have any money. And so you're like, what, what does this look like for me? I've got no treasures. And 
Here's, I, I really do think this is what this means for you. I think it means that the re, you get your mind right, that the reason that you go to college and get out of college and go find a really good job and make a lot of money, it's all about your motivation. I think the reason you do that, you work hard in college, get a great job, make a lot of money, is not so you can go live the American dream. I think you work really hard in college, go get a great job and make a lot of money so that you can tear down the gates of hell for the glory of God with it. That's what I think you do. I encourage you guys, if you're in college, young adults, find a church, give to it of your time and your finances, give to it faithfully. And then you, you, you get out of here and go find another church and, and like live your life on mission for him, for the glory of God. You will never regret it. That's point number one. Let's obey Jesus. Point number two, last one. This is actually, in my opinion, really important. It's a subtle mind-shifting thing about giving. So here's application number two, final one. Don't give to the kingdom to be blessed. Give to the kingdom because you are blessed. That's a huge shift. Don't give to God so that he'll bless you in return. Give to God because he's already blessed you. Okay, and that's, that's the shift you see from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you see it in Malachi. God's like, look, I want you to give to me Give 10%, I want you to set it aside, keep it holy unto the Lord, don't touch it. And if you'll do that, if you don't believe me that I'm gonna bless you, put me in test, I'll blow your socks off. And so God says he'll bless us, but that can't be the reason in the New Testament that we give. A lot of churches out there saying, hey, if you'll give, you'll get this in return. But there's a shift. The shift happens in the New Testament. The Old Testament, you give so that God will extravagantly bless you. And the New Testament, you've been extravagantly blessed by God, therefore you extravagantly give. You see the difference? There's a difference. Let me, let me show you, let me show you what I'm talking about. Ephesians 1.3, just to show you how much you've been blessed. Ephesians 1.3 says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's the difference. Old Testament, you give to be blessed. New Testament, you realize, my goodness, I've been blessed beyond my wildest imagination. Then what other response do I have but to bless God in return? Give you an analogy and then uh, we'll be done. So this summer, analogy what this looks like. This summer was Jennifer and I's 26 year anniversary um, the, that's a long time to live with me. I'm just saying that, that's a long time to live with me. And she is amazing. And, and so we did a couple things for our 26 year anniversary. Um, on the night of our anniversary, we went to dinner and it was a really cool dinner because all we did really for two hours, we just sat there and we talked about the days where we met, like our first days hanging out together and our first date and um, it was really cool because I had forgotten things that she remembered and she had forgotten things that I remembered. And so we just talked for a couple of hours about it. it was really fun. But the other thing that I did is I, I decided um, uh, to take her 
to, I'm not gonna tell you where, and I'll tell you why in a second, but I took her, I took her someplace else besides dinner. Uh, I took her on vacation for a week, and I'll talk about that in a second. But one of the things we did that night as we talked at dinner is we talked about our first date. I've told you before, I was at A&M, we met in class. She was beautiful, she was funny, she loved Jesus, and I'm like, I have got to take this woman out on a date and impress her. Now, y'all remember from last week, I had a conversation with God, and I was like, God, this is not a Chili's kind of woman. This is a... This is a Perry Steakhouse kind of woman. But what I did not tell you is that I, I did not have a Perry Steakhouse kind of budget. And so our first date was actually at Chili's. It's a true story. <laughs> but, right, went to Chili's and, and here's what I did. I'd been working at Pizza Hut. I had some money saved up. I was like, I am going to impress this girl. I'm gonna bless her. And the reason I wanted to bless her because I wanted her to like me. So when we got the chilies, I was like, girl, you can order anything you want. You want chicken crispers? You, you go for it. You want an appetizer? Let's go, right? Get some of those chips and salsa, which are amazing, by the way. That's what we did. We were at chips and salsa. I think I actually got chicken crispers. That's why I almost had a heart attack. And then, and then uh, I don't remember what she ordered. I think we got dessert. It was like a lava cake or something. Now, now look. I think it was back then, that would have been, my gosh, 1993. It was like 38 bucks. It almost broke me. But I wanted her to like me. So afterwards, I took her to a movie. Now, I didn't take her to any movie. I took her to a dollar movie because I was pretty much out of money. And we went to the dollar movie theater. We saw uh, Sleepless in Seattle when it was in the, a great movie if you've never seen it. And there's this one scene where fireworks are going off. And I had this planned out and I looked at her and I smiled at her and I said, would you, would you be willing to hold my hand? And she said, yes. And I grabbed her hand and put her hand in mine. It was like a thousand volts of lightning just (laughs) went through my mind, my body. It's the coolest thing I'd ever experienced in my young life. So here's what I want you to see. Why did I do all that giving? I, I, I did all that giving because I wanted to, I wanted her to bless me. I wanted her to like me and it worked. Like I gave, she blessed, right? But as 26 years rolled around, there's, there's something that, that, that dawned on me. There was, a, there was a shift in me as our 26 year anniversary rolled around is that Chili's in a dollar movie wasn't quite the message I wanted to send. And so this summer, I saved, I saved my money and I took her to um, this beach. And it was actually not like a crazy amount of money or thinking, you know, like big pastor church kind of thing. It was 2,000 bucks, which is a lot of money for us, but this place was amazing. And uh, it was this little house. It was actually a private beach, about 400 yards long, crystal clear blue water. We didn't see anybody all week long. And um, you're asking me, Matt, only $2,000 for private beach. Where is it? I'm not going to tell you because I don't want you showing up at it. But it was, this was amazing. It was, a, it was probably the best vacation we've ever been on. We, gosh, we talked for hours. We got up and we watched sunrises. We watched sunsets. We, we just had this really cool time connecting with each other over the course of that week. And here's the shift 
that happened in my heart, guys, is God is my witness. Here's the shift that happened. I was not concerned at all about whether or not she was going to bless me. The only thing that I was concerned about is I want to bless her. Why? Why did I want to bless her? Because after 26 years, it's dawned on me that with the exception of Jesus Christ, this woman's been the greatest blessing in my life. This woman left Houston and moved to Austin, left an incredible job, moved to Austin uh, and, and lived in abject poverty for three years while we planted a church. This is, this is the, the woman that carried all three of my children in her womb and then spent hours giving labor to them. This is, this is the woman that has stood by my side through cancer and comforted me in the death of my mother and then walked through cancer again with me. This is the woman that stood by me when a lot of women would have not stood by me for 26 years. She has been a constant source of love and encouragement and pointing me to Jesus to the point that if she died today, I could stand at her funeral without hesitation and say she was a Proverbs 31 woman. She lived it out. The charm is, charm is deceitful. Charm is deceitful and beauty is in vain, but a woman that fears the Lord shall be praised. I could say it without hesitation. And as I think about that, the way that she has blessed me, my only response is how in the world can I not bless her? That's a picture of New Testament. When you think about all that God has done, when you think about all that he's provided for you and been faithful to you, what other response is there? But to say, God, I'm gonna bless you whether you bless me anymore or not, in case you've forgotten how much he's blessed you. I'm gonna read you a few verses. We're gonna show you a three-minute video, and then I'm gonna pray. Here's how God has blessed you. Listen carefully, Ephesians 2, 1. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, in whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But then it starts getting good. In verse four, it says, but God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead and your trespasses made us alive with Christ, by grace you have been saved. It could have stopped right there and we've been blessed more than we deserve. But it keeps going in verse five. It says, and when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He keeps going in verse six. And he raised you up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's enough. We've got a seat in heaven with a name on it. But it keeps going. In verse seven, it says, so that in the ages to come, he might show immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Man. When that starts sinking in on you, you're not worried about how he's gonna bless you. What you ought to be worried about is how am I gonna bless him? I wanna show you a video. We, uh, we actually had a, a guy that goes to Sagemont that was working on our new youth building lead one of the construction guys to Christ, the first guy that ever got saved because of our youth building. I'll show you the story.
My name is Angelo Torres. I am um, 35. I've been an iron worker for a long time. Um, Christ came into my life nine years ago. Um, he changed what was on the inside, um, and I was still Angelo on the outside as an iron worker. And so I was baptized and saved at Sagemont, and I know it wasn't just the building, it was the people inside that loved on me. I have a friend named Cheyenne that I've known and worked with over the past 16, 17 years of being an iron worker. And so um, I had the opportunity um, to share the gospel with him. Uh, life was impacted not by me, but how God used me. He knew me when I wasn't saved. Uh, and we had kind of grown apart. We went on different job sites and uh, I ended up starting my own company uh, about five years by the grace of God. He's led me to this point and so Cheyenne was looking for work about five months ago so I hired him and uh, when he came on automatically he could see um, not me changing but Christ in me um, the questions started coming as that happens when you haven't uh, seen somebody in a long time and you follow Christ the questions start coming um, what's different is the main one and so that gave me the opportunity to share what God and somebody else had shared with me nine years ago. As God has told us, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 is to uh, make disciples um, and baptize them. And I asked about baptism. I asked about um, who his Savior was, where he was going to spend eternity. And from that asking, he opened up his heart. He gave his life to Christ. We went over the scriptures. And a beautiful thing happened that I, I, uh, I got to see in so many times before. It wasn't the first time that a, a worker of mine came to Christ. And so I brought it up to uh, the staff. Um, and there was just this excitement because of the building that's being built outside was already being used and there was no walls on it. And that's the perfect picture of, of the church being us, the body of Christ, as it talks about in, in the New Testament. And we rallied around a week ago And there was a baptism at the cross. And uh, another child was brought home. Being um, new and, and wanting to share the gospel, I wanted to try to use my words. I wanted to try to persuade. If I could just, you know, say this, then maybe they would think that that God is 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 cool or, or however however my mind had thought, but it, it's God's word that, that changes hearts. It's it's God's uh, wisdom. There's nothing we could really do to offer that free gift that God has already given on the cross. Let Christ do the speaking. Isn't that great? That's, that's the genius of, of biblical generosity is you get, to, you get to be a part of stories that you never would be able to be a part of had you not been a part of giving. Make that building happen. Guys, listen, I only with this. I had a friend email me this week. He said, Matt, be sure before you end your final serving, give everybody a charge, all right? So here's your charge. Here it is. If you're not a kingdom giver, but you're a believer today, I want you to make a commitment right now. I just want you to do something. Just do something. Give something, give consistently, and then fight for margin to be a generous giver in light of the gospel.
If you're here and you already give, um, I want, you've already given, I want you to ask the question, am I a New Testament giver? Am I a gospel-centered giver? Am I giving in order to bless God? Is my giving a picture of the sacrifice that he made? And then finally, if you're here and you're one of those generous people, you can always say, man, I'm sacrificially giving to the Lord in light of how he's blessed me. I wanna ask you this and I'm gonna pray. I want you to seriously think about whether or not God is asking you to do crazy stuff like Al and Judy Lopez.